today I'm going to ask you, uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, then I've got good news for you because uh, Genesis is indeed the very first book of the Bible, so you just need to turn there. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 35, so I'm going to get you to stand again. You feel like a yo-yo a bit today? Why don't you stand with me? So, uh, this is our last installment uh, on Encounters with God. Next Sunday, of course, believe it or not, is Palm Sunday. And we're going to begin a three-part series called The Faces of Easter. And uh, we'll be looking at that next Sunday morning. Um, And uh, so let's read together. I'm reading blue, you're reading black. And this is what it says. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was at Sheshem, or Shechem, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Let's pray. Father, again, in the name of Jesus, by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, we pause to acknowledge your presence in our midst. We ask that you would give us now a voice to speak, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and minds to comprehend. And then as we leave this room, as we leave this place, as we leave this property, and go out into our homes, and go out into our neighborhoods, and our streets, and where we work, and where we play, and where we educate, and wherever it is that we go, that we may be faithful followers and disciples of the living Christ. And we ask this in his name and for his name's sake. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, this is the last story in Jacob's spiritual life. From here on in in the book of Genesis, Joseph will begin to become the prominent person. Jacob will actually one more time become prominent, but that will be at the time of his death. Now our text begins with this. Go up, or rather get up and go up. God says to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel 
and dwell there. Now, for those of us who aren't familiar with the Bible, and for those of us that aren't familiar or maybe new to Christianity, let me give you a little bit of background about this place called Bethel. Bethel is 20 miles, sorry, Bethel is 20 kilometers north of Jerusalem, about 12 miles. Bethel is the place where Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, established his first, built his first altar and made an offering to God. Bethel is the place where Melchizedek lived. But particularly pertinent to our text this morning, Bethel is the place where Jacob had his first encounter with the living God. Bethel literally means the house of God. And Bethel is the place where we have the story of Jacob's ladder. Now, whether we, are, we don't know the Bible at all, most of us, if not all of us, have heard the story about Jacob's ladder. Where Jacob is, he falls asleep and he has this dream of this ladder that reaches into heaven and angels are coming and going from heaven to earth back and forth. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. And we get that story from Genesis chapter 28, verse 20 and on. Now, one of the things that we have to keep in mind here is very important what's going on. This is the, the story of Jacob's ladder and Jacob's dream comes after Jacob is on the run from his brother, twin brother Esau's anger because Jacob as deceived his brother Esau in giving up his birthright and his firstborn blessing from his father. And because he's been fooled and tricked and cheated, Esau is livid, and of course Jacob is running from his brother's anger. And when he stops the night, whatever night it is, he falls asleep, and he has his dream. How many of you have ever seen the movie Inception? Really? How many of you have seen the movie Inception? Excellent. For those of you that have, this is like that. For those of you that haven't, it's not anything like that. So let me tell you the story in a nutshell. First of all, Jacob falls asleep. He goes into this sleep, and in the sleep, God appears to him, and God says to him in Genesis chapter 28, God says that I am the God of your father, your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac, and I will be your God. And then God speaks to him and says to him, and this is very important, and we don't have time to get into it today, God gives to Jacob the same promise he gave to his father Isaac and to his father Abraham that he's going to have many descendants, more than the sand of the seashore, and that through Jacob all of the nations of the world is going to be blessed. And Jacob wakes up, and he realizes that this is not some crazy dream that he had because he had too much pizza and onions the night before. That he has had his first encounter with God. His first encounter with God. And he responds by saying, surely God is in this place. And he names this place, this location, he names it Bethel. And as we already identified, it means the house of God. Matter of fact, Jacob actually says, How awesome is this place? In verse chapter 28, This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
And the text tells us that, chapter 28 of Genesis tells us that he names it Bethel. Now, we come back to our text that we just read a couple of moments ago in Genesis chapter 35. Verses 1 to 7 is a call to get back. Not really, because we understand that the call to return sometimes is a call to return, but everything is different, and and in order really to move forward, or rather in order to move forward, we can never really go back. So this is really a call to return, to get back. Jacob needs his spiritual life renewed. Have you ever felt that way? Where you needed your spiritual life renewed? I have. That's for sure. Somebody said that faith like hinges can get rusty if they are not kept oiled and well used. Now there are some places and some experiences in life that we associate with fond memories. We all have them. Me, you. These places, these experiences that leave us with fond, fond memories. Well, for Jacob, Bethel is one of those places. Bethel is filled with fond memories because it is the place where Jacob first encounters God. Arise, God says to him, and go up to Bethel and dwell there. It's a call. It's a call to return to the place, to the house of God. It is a call to return to where he first encountered God. It's a call to come home. Ultimately, of course, it's a call to return to God because it's been 30 years now that has passed from the experience of Jacob's ladder and the dream to where Jacob is at right now. And God says to him, dwell there. I want you to live there. I want you to be present there. I want you to settle there. One of the things that we learn is that what God wanted is God wanted Jacob to soak his bruised soul in the memory of Bethel. And then our text says, make an altar there. To the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Make an altar there is a statement that sort of ties it all together and makes the point. And here's the point. Jacob is a third generation God follower. His father, his grandfather Abraham was the first generation. His father Isaac is the second generation. And Jacob is the third generation follower of God. In our terms, in the 21st century, we might say that he was a third generation Christian. But things have slipped. There is decline. There is spiritual neglect. There is a distance between Jacob and the God he met at Bethel. In other words, Jacob is away from God. 
And this is a call to return. It's a call to get back. It's a call to repentance. And we see it in the statement, make an altar there. Now, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was known for a bunch of things, but two that we want to identify this morning. First of all is that Jacob was, or rather, Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, was an altar builder. Everywhere he went in the book of Genesis, when he has some sort of experience with God, he builds an altar. So he's an altar builder. Altar building, of course, is a sign of encounter. It's a sign of sacrifice. It's a sign that something or someone has died. It's a response to God. And the second thing that Abraham did is, first of all, he built altars, but the second thing that he did is he dug wells. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that wells and water, of course, are a means of physical survival. But in the Bible, wells and waters are also symbols of spiritual life. And altars and wells are connected. They are metaphors. They go together. Spiritually, the one is the result of the other. That altars are the symbol of righteousness. They are the symbol that I am in right standing with God. And wells are a sign of blessing being poured out or being brought up. That's Abraham, grandfather. And then we come to Isaac, Jacob's father. And we can even begin to see by the second generation, by Isaac's time, things that begin to slip. Things that begin to decay. Things that begin to decline. Because we find in Genesis chapter 20, verse 26, verse 15, that Abraham's wells have begun to be clogged, filled in, stopped up. And we notice in Genesis chapter 26 that Isaac does a couple of things. First of all, he begins to open the wells of his father Abraham. And that's a sign that, that Isaac is beginning to find solid footing again. And then it tells us a little bit later that not only did he open up his father's well, but he also dug his own wells. And we made the point, if you'll remember, and if you were here, you watched the message online, that every generation has to dig their own wells. That we cannot live off the spiritual blessing and experiences of our grandparents or our parents or our forebears. That everybody has to experience God for themselves. We made the comment that God has no grandchildren, only children. But by the time the third generation, by the time Jacob rolls around, we begin to see that there is a greater need for return. A greater need to re-encounter God for ourselves. So let me show you for a moment how spiritual decline and neglect works. Or let me at least show you from the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob how spiritual decline and neglect takes place. So we have in, first of all, what started in grandfather Abraham as a seed is finally becomes a full-blown plant or tree 
in the life of the grandson. Here's the example. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20. We have in grandfather Abraham what is considered a half lie. He goes to Pharaoh in Egypt and he goes to Abimelech in Gerar or in Philistine in, 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 um, with the Philistines and he says to Sarah, I want you to tell them that you are my sister and not my wife. Because if they discover that you are my wife, they will kill me and take you for myself because apparently Sarah was some knockout gorgeous woman. The Bible says, my interpretation. So what begins as a half-lie with Abraham becomes a full lie in Genesis chapter 26 with Isaac. With the same thing, now we, he comes to Abimelech, and we don't know if it's the same Abimelech that, is, that Abraham dealt with, or uh, it's Abimelech's son who was named after him as Abimelech Jr., we really don't know, but Jacob actually lies. It's a full lie. By the time we come to Jacob, this sin, this spiritual decline from a half-truth in his grandfather to a full-truth, full lie in his father, has become full-blown deception in the grandson. Jacob's name means the deceiver. The con man. Now, I got something to say to us that you're not going to like. So put your seatbelt on. Now, I just told you you're not going to like it. I have seen this happen in my entire pastoral ministry experience. What begins in the first generation as faithfulness becomes in generations a little bit later hardly a sign of faith. Now, hear me. Church attendance is where it's played out, where it's seen. But church attendance is not the issue. The issue is a relationship with God, spiritual life. So the first generation are consistent. They are faithful. They never miss. They are faithful to God. They are faithful to the body of Christ. Second generation comes along and says, wow, that's way too much church. That's way too much God. That's way too intense. So you know what? We're going to sort of um, dial it down a little bit. By the time the third generation comes along, the third generation comes along and says, you know, We'll sort of do other things, and when, it, when, when, you know, when we don't have anything else to do, then we'll go to church. And the children, the next generation, what they learn is this, that we only go to church, we only really serve God when we don't have anything else going on. The next generation learns that faith and God and church are really not that important. And by the time the next generation rolls around, there is no memory of faith, no memory of God, and no memory of church. I have seen entire generations being lost 
because of this issue. But Genesis 35, 2-4, we have this call to get to it. God says three things, and Jacob does three things. The first thing that God says is put away your foreign gods, and that's what Jacob does. Now, we know that they had foreign gods because we're told in Genesis 31, 19, when, when they left Laban, Rebekah actually stole her father's household gods. And we assume that along the road and over the last number of years that Jacob's family has picked up various gods here and there. But the fact that they have foreign gods is actually a sign of spiritual decline and neglect. And the Ten Commandments is very specific and very clear about other gods. I read somebody just a couple of weeks ago and they said, there are no atheists. There are only people who know and who do not know who their gods are. Let me say it again. There are no atheists. There are only people who know and who do not know what their gods are or what God they serve. Now, how does this apply to us? What gods might we acquire that we need to consider relinquishing? These are the cultural, these are the societal voices that we listen to, and these voices have great strength. There is, first of all, the happiness God. My happiness depends on my desired standard of living. What I have, where I, can, where I can go, and what I can do without limits, that happiness depends on outward circumstances. And then there's the control God. I alone control my destiny. And some of you will be familiar with the famous line from William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, where, I am, where he writes, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul the control God. And then there's the wealth God. Wealth brings happiness and security. And then there is the possessions God. That more is better. That big is better. And then there is what I call the plastic God or aka the debt God. Where credit says that I can have it all. And then there's the self-sufficient God. I don't need anyone. And then there's the white lying God. I can be a little bit dishonest because everybody else is. A little bit is not going to hurt. In fact, a little lie might help me get ahead. And then there's the greed God. It's more blessed to get than to give. And I want it. I want it all. And then there's the live for today God. Who cares about the next generation? Who cares about tomorrow? Who cares about the future? Who cares about eternity? And then there is the image God. I must look a certain way. 
body image, success, importance. And then finally, there is the self-absorbed God, that it's all about me. I am the center of the universe. I'm the center of this church. I'm the center of my family. It all revolves around me. And Exodus says this, You shall have no other gods before me. Because we know that anything that replaces God is an idol. And an idol is a false god. An idol is a substitute. And idolatry is living on substitutes. Now, there's an interesting line in the text. In the text, it says, and it mentions this, that all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, if you grew up in the church that I grew up in, this would be the optimal place to talk about where women shouldn't wear earrings. And we heard it lots. Matter of fact, when we went to Bible college like 100 years ago, well, Kevin is 100 years ago, 75 for me. <clears throat> the girls weren't allowed to wear earrings. Now, I don't know if they paste off this text, but it's literally, it has nothing to do with the earrings that you're wearing today, by the way. Nothing. But it does have to do with this. There's a text in um, Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, there's a text that says that if uh, a slave uh, was released free, set free, and if that slave, he or she, wanted to stay with her master or his master because they loved their master, then what the master was supposed to do was take an awl, A-W-L, take the ear of the servant and find a doorpost and take a little hammer and put the all through the ear with the hammer as a sign that they were lifelong willing servants and slaves. That's the idea here. Because rings in the ears are associated are associated with gods. Every god add a piece of jewelry attached to it. And isn't that the case? That all the gods that I've just mentioned is that there's enough that we get hooked by them. And when we get hooked, we get tied to serving them. And they do not let us go easily. But in our text... They gather all of these rings that are associated with these foreign gods, and Jacob does something very peculiar with them. He buries them under the terebinth tree. In other words, there is a death. And because there's a death, there is a need for burial. And then the second thing that he says is purify yourselves. Purify yourselves. The psalmist picked it up and the psalmist said, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
And who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a clean heart. And then James picks it up and says in the New Testament, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then the last thing that he says, he says, change your garments. And we could get into this and talk about how this is about the robes of righteousness, but changing the garments is a symbol, it's a way of preparation. But lastly, Jacob got it. He got it. And I love verse 5. I love the statement in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And as they journeyed, back to Bethel. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. Now, I like to call this holy terror. And what it, I think it means is simply this, that God says that you and I, we are to do what we're supposed to do. Jacob, you do what you're supposed to do. Get rid of your foreign gods, purify your hearts, change your garments. <coughs> and God says, and I will do what I can do, something which you cannot. I was reading the Psalms this week, and I happened upon Psalm 68. And I want to put it on the screen, and it's in your notes, and I want to read it to you. And I want you to listen to it. This is what it says, Oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, and the skies poured down rain at the presence of God. The God of Sinai at the presence of God, the God of Israel, you sent a gracious rain, O God, upon your inheritance. You refreshed the land when it was weary. Your people found their home in it. In your goodness, O God, you made provision for the poor. Now I want to highlight three things in this psalm. First of all, it talks about the ways in which God blesses. Rain is always the symbol of blessing. There are times when there are downpours of rain in our lives, where we are just inundated with the blessing of God, that the rain just seems to pour down. This is talking about Sinai, by the way, <coughs> where there was the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the rain. And then there's another way in which God blesses us. Sometimes it's a downpour, and at other times it's a gracious rain. Ruth and I will, Ruth of course has got farm in her background, and she's a farm girl, and when it rains, that misty, gentle rain, we call that a farmer's rain. <clears throat> and sometimes in our lives, God just pours down the rain. And there are other times where the rain is just gentle. It's gracious. But that's not the most important piece of the text. The most important piece of the text is found in the very first word. And it's this. Oh God, when you went before your people, Church, brothers and sisters, listen. This is the promise of God, that He goes before us. 
He goes before you. And you. And you. And you and me. And when He goes before us, He determines whether it's going to be a downpour or whether it just needs to be a gracious rain. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what does that have to do with 35.5? It has this to do. It was a supernatural terror. It was a supernatural dread, not, above, not of Jacob, but of God. And God says this, you do your part. Todd, you do your part. Jacob, you do your part. Kevin, you do your part. And I'll do my part. I'll take care of job security. I'll take care of the price of the dollar. I'll take care of the price of gas. I'll go before you and I will put the fear of God in people that are opposed to you that when they fall downstairs, they will need directions. They will be so confused. God did that. He did that in Joshua where it says, and our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, because of God. And God does the same thing for me and you. And this is it. This is what God is saying. Jacob is witnessing to this very thing. It's about the abiding presence of God. I will not only be with you, but I'll go before you. I'll go before you. You see, Jacob's encounter with God in Genesis chapter 35 is meant to teach him and us about the nearness of God. And then there's one last statement, and with this, I'm finished. Verse 7 says, And there he built an altar, and he called the place Il-Bethel. So he builds an altar, he calls the place Il-Bethel, not just the house of God, but the God of the house of God. That's important, we don't have time to get into it. But the very last thing is that there's a repetition of Genesis 35, verse 1, in verse 7. In verse 1 and in verse 7, it says that God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. That same line is in verse 1 and in verse 7. And I've learned that anytime the Bible says something twice, it's not there just because it's an accident. It is there on purpose. It is intentional. And I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why does it say twice that God appeared to him when he fled from his brother Esau. Why twice? And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. You ready for it? It's when Jacob stopped running that God appeared to him at Bethel. And it's when you and I stop running that God appears to us. And so I ask all of us this morning, is there anything we are running from? Is there anyone that we are running from? Are we running from our past? Are we running from God? Are we running from the gospel? 
maybe we're running from the church. And some of us are just stuck. We're running, but it feels like we're on a treadmill or we're on some stationary bike. We are putting in incredible effort, but we're going nowhere. We're just stuck. And we can keep doing that. We can keep doing what we've always been doing. Or we can choose to stop. And I've learned some things, and I've learned this. We can't outrun our past. No matter how long or how fast we think we run. Can't outrun it. And we can't outrun God. And we cannot outrun the gospel. But if we stop, God will meet with us. If we stop, it's there that God will meet with us. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment, and I'm gonna, we're going to be done in like a minute. Now, I don't know you. I only know me. But I know that you know you, and the Holy Spirit knows you. And so my question to you today is this. Are you running from anything or anyone? Are you running from your past? Are you running from God? Are you running from the gospel? Because you're never going to outrun those. And today, if we stop, if you stop, God will meet with you. And you will have an encounter with him that you will be able to establish and name the place, the experience, as the house of God. Let me pray for you. Father, you know every heart that's sitting in this room. You know every heart that is watching online. You know every heart that is watching this on the archive. Father, you know every soul who's on the run. And maybe I haven't mentioned what they're running from. But they know, you know, and that's what matters. But Lord, we'll never, ever outrun it. Jacob could never outrun the anger of his brother. He had to eventually face him. And we can't outrun our past. We cannot outrun you because you are tenacious. You pursue us. And we cannot escape, we cannot run from the gospel. Because it will, it will pursue our hearts. Jesus will pursue our hearts 
until we surrender. But Father, there may be some in the room today online that we just need to stop. And we need to allow you to meet with us. And we need to have an encounter with you. And when we do, we will be transformed. So help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.